You're listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and it's time once again for elementary music theory in the great outdoors with yours truly, James Corbett. All right, class, does everyone have their guitar? Good, because today we're going to learn all about the variations on a D chord that you can do in the open position on guitar. Are you ready? Let's go. First, you're going to want to mute the E, low E and A strings. However you want to do it is fine. I tend to wrap my thumb around, but just as long as those strings aren't ringing out, it should be okay. And then we're going to start with the D string. You can just let that one ring open, just like that. That's obviously going to be the root of our chord. So we have the D, and then the next, with your first finger on the second fret of the G string, you're going to play an A. That's the fifth of the chord. And then there's going to be another D up here on the third fret of the B string. That's obviously another D. It's a root, but it's an octave higher. And then here comes the magic. You remember from last time, folks, the third of the chord is where the magic happens. And this is where we determine the major or minor tonality. So in this case, we're going to put a major third on. That will be the second fret of this E string. It's going to be an F sharp. And when we put the F sharp on, then suddenly we have a D major chord. What a jolly little chord. But as you know, if we take that major third and move it down to a minor third, in this case an F, then we have a D minor chord. A sad little chord. If we wanted to add some ambiguity, we could make it into a sus chord. In this case, if we take that major third and move it up to the G, then we have a D sus four. Or if we take our finger off of the E string altogether and just play that E open, then we have a D. Oh, wait. Oh, I see what you did there. You almost made me play it, didn't you? But as we all know, that chord is a thought crime on YouTube. Another video they claimed was me playing a D sus2 chord, a beautiful chord, which is obviously copyrighted because it's the first chord of Stop This Train. So, I cannot explain how to play a slapping technique because, yeah, a D sus2 chord is copyrighted material. Yeah, makes sense, right? Now, for those who don't know, that's Paul Davids, a YouTuber with an extremely popular channel, over 1.2 million subscribers, who recently uploaded a video on how today's copyright policy impacts me, talking about some of the most egregious copyright violations that he has been flagged for on his channel, simply delivering guitar lessons and music uh, theory uh, to his subscribers, including having the audacity to show people how to play a D sus2 chord, which was, as we all know, the opening chord of whatever particular song ended up uh, setting off the copyright uh, flag. Although it has also been used in, to be fair, about a million other songs. <laughs> it's just ridiculous on his face. He talks about some other examples, including a 15-minute video that he did where for a few seconds he plays one eight-note lick from an Eagle song, 
which again is enough to set off the copyright violation filter and uh, gets not, not his video demonetized, but all the advertising revenue to go to Universal Music Group or whatever label claims to own those particular eight notes. Uh, it, there are many other examples. He talks about one example. I'm not sure if it was in that video or a previous video. One video where he uh, created a backing track for his uh, his viewers, essentially just a chord progression that you could then use to solo over. Someone took that backing track and made a song out of it, put a melody on top, drums, whatever, and then uploaded that song to YouTube claiming it as their own copyright. And then, of course, the YouTube content ID algorithm goes, oh, look, this is the same as this uh, this this chord progression that is in this video that Paul Davids uploaded a couple of years ago. So Paul Davids ends up getting copyright flagged for his own backing track. Uh, and this is not by any means an uncommon story. If you follow any sort of music theory, music teaching, mu music uh, channels on YouTube, you will have heard these types of stories from creators at some point. Uh, and even if you're not interested in music specifically, this still affects a ridiculous amount of content on GooTube. Um, for example, I did mention once briefly a long time ago, but it's relevant here, a uh, guy gets bogus YouTube copyright claim on birds singing in the background. Yes, even birds singing, birds chirping can be uh, copyright claimed by various, well, I mean, there's there's people who make those CDs of, you know, nature sounds, and if they put that into the content ID uh, system that YouTube has set up, then when it hears a certain bird chirp, then, oh, that's, that's owned by this company, which created this CD. Again, nonsense on its face. And sometimes, to be fair, these stories have a happy ending, or as happy as it can be in a ridiculous system like this. For example, with that particular DSUS2 claim on that one video that uh, Paul Davids was mentioning there in the clip, that did, ultimately, that claim did get released after he released his video talking about it and complaining about it. Of course, he does have 1.2 million subscribers. That particular copyright claim video had been seen nearly half a million times. He had tens of thousands of his uh, viewers up in arms and, and sending nasty messages to Team YouTube, etc. So he was able to get that copyright claim released. But for the average Joe Schmo with a few dozen subscribers, uh, you're not going to be so lucky. And it's not necessarily going to be a happy ending um, with claims like that. But you could say to yourself, well, yes, this is all horrible, but this fundamentally doesn't get at the root of copyright itself. I mean, this isn't about copyright per se as an idea. It's about one particular instantiation of that idea through a particular system that's been set up by a company that resides in California to conform to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act passed in the 1990s, which provides a safe harbor to platforms like YouTube as long as the people uploading content to their uh, their system that may be infringing copyright, as long as YouTube or whatever platform makes a good faith effort to remove that content when it's pointed out to them or come to a acceptable agreement with the copyright holder, like sending advertising revenue their way or whatever it is. So YouTube has set up this system that conforms to that so that ultimately they can continue operating and uh, are not going to be sued into oblivion and blah, blah, blah. So this is a particular instantiation of a particular set of rules that have been put into place to conform to a certain law that was passed in a certain jurisdiction. It doesn't say anything about copyright itself. 
And you may have a point there. In fact, it is tempting when one starts to broach the topic of intellectual property and its deeper meaning, uh, copyright, patent, trademarks, and trade secrets, uh, all falling under this umbrella. Although they're, they're very different things with different legal histories and, and applications and different points to be made about each one of those forms of intellectual property. But it is tempting when we're broaching this subject to start talking about some of these most ridiculous examples. For example, in the copyright realm, something like what Paul Davids was pointing out there, or in the patent realm, for example, something like uh, the ridiculous, uh, just mind-blowingly insane patents that you can that have been registered in the US Patent Office. For example, United States Patent 5443036 method of exercising a cat, essentially using a laser pointer to make a cat run around. <laughs> uh, United States Patent 6025810, a hyper light speed antenna which uh, talks about how one could send signals at a speed faster than light, you know, I mean, assuming we do come up with a way to break the laws of physics, <laughs> and United States Patent 3936384, religious soap. And the abstract for that is simply a soap bar, which is embossed with a religious design on one side and a prayer on the other side. Yeah, that's patentable. And uh, those ridiculous patents will give us a chuckle. Um, we might point at m more substantial and uh, more uh, patents that have a more hit, uh, more of a hindrance overall that we can point to, like Amazon attempting to patent the one-click purchase. Oh, yeah, making a click to purchase something is just inherently patentable, isn't it? Of course not. But uh, we could turn to trademark and ridiculous trademark suits. Uh, for example, the color orange Hershey and Mars settled trademark dispute, in which, of course, the Hershey company is uh, suing people like Mars Inc. for having the audacity, once again, to use the color orange too prominently in a candy bar packaging, when, of course, everyone knows orange is Reese's. Reese's Pieces has the, the, the trademark on orange packaging for candy. I mean, everyone knows that. And how dare you come out with a candy bar that uses orange? Or uh, probably one of the funniest headlines of all time, certainly uh, up there in terms of APNews.com from February 18th, 1989. Restaurant trademarks Bozo. Bozo the Clown, unhappy. Yes, uh, again, there are a lot, there are no end to examples like this that we can look at and laugh at, but that don't seem to really strike at the core of the matter. What really is intellectual property? How does it really function? Is it really justified? On what basis is it justified? How does it function? Is it a net gain or a net hindrance? And should that matter? I mean, fundamentally, is it just? These are all the real questions that we want to start stabbing at today. So let's get back to the real question, which is the base question underlying all of this. The question, what is intellectual property? And that is a good question. But I think the first thing we have to understand is that intellectual property is not property. The basic problem with patent and copyright as state-granted monopoly privileges, right? They are ex explicitly designed to protect people and companies from competition. As I mentioned, the holder of the patent or copyright can use state force against potential competitors. It's basically a completely fused, confused notion, which is an outgrowth of the mercantilist ideas 
which were anti-competitive, of the last several hundred years. It's also based upon the confused idea that it is sometimes wrong to learn or to actually use information in deciding how you want to use your own property, that is your own scarce resources that you have property rights in. That is wrong to copy or to emulate or to compete in some contexts. Now what it does is it, it uses the language of property rights in trying to say there's property rights by virtue of these laws in information and in patterns and in designs. But remember, the entire function of property, the purpose of property, is to address the problem of natural scarcity in the real world that we live in, not the world of cocaine. But ideas and knowledge and recipes and designs are just knowledge that we have. Unlike scarce resources, they are not scarce. And they can be used over and over and over again, infinitely, and they can be used at the same time by an infinite number of people without diminishing the other people's ability to do the same. So, for example, if I and my neighbor both want to make um, uh, a chocolate cake, then we cannot use the same mixing bowl and wooden spoon and eggs and flour and ingredients. These are scarce resources and we each need to own our own separate ingredients and capital facilities to make the cake in. But we can both use the exact same recipe at the same time, even if one of us learned it from observing the other. There is no conflict in the use of knowledge. But patent and copyright try to impose scarcity on things that are non-scarce. It tries to make them more scarce. Now this is perverse because the free market is doing the opposite when it comes to actual scarce goods. Things that are in short supply are not sufficiently abundant supply like food and energy and houses and shelter and clothing um, or in natural short supply or scarce supply, but the free market strives to make them more abundant in the face of scarcity. We're trying to overcome this unfortunate fact of scarcity. But we don't have this problem with knowledge. In fact, we have a growing base of knowledge in society and civilization which we, can, which we can draw on. And in fact, it is good that we have this. Uh, it's good that we have um, um, uh, a growing base of knowledge. So the fundamental problem with IP is that because you really cannot have property rights in non-scarce things, they are always actually enforced against scarce things. Um, so IP is just a disguised way of undercutting real property rights. Remember, these real property rights were put in place as the civilized mechanism to permit productive, peaceful, and fair and just and efficient use of these scarce resources. But when IP rights are introduced, it undercuts these rights. What do I mean by that? An IP right really gives a third party who holds the IP the right to control other people's scarce resources. So, for example, in the recent case, the American singer Beyonce has been sued by a Belgian dancer because Beyonce used moves in, in a music video, dance moves, that are similar to the ones that were in an earlier um, video by the Belgian dancer and the Belgian dancer's group. Now, if she prevails, then she will either get a court order telling Beyonce that you cannot use your body in this way, or that will take some of the money from Beyonce's bank account, which she owns, and give it to, um, to them. Okay. Similarly, Apple just the other day got a patent on a, 
using a, a gesture to unlock the iPhone or smartphones. If this patent is upheld and if they're successful in suing someone, they can prevent other makers from making their own smartphones with that gesture. So it basically gives Apple a veto over how other people use their own property. Now, a veto right is a type of property right. It's called a negative servitude in the civil law. So what this means is that the government, by the law, has given some third party a, a property right in someone else's property. That's a redistribution of property rights. Now, this is actually the grounds that libertarians usually object to many laws, like the minimum wage, or drug laws, or taxation, or conscription, or censorship, or pornography laws. There we have the government stepping in and telling you that you cannot use your own body or property in certain ways. And we object by saying, what business is it of yours, how I use my property? You have no right to veto or use of my right, of my own property. You have no right to penalize me, either monetarily or with jail, a jail fine, a jail sentence, um, for doing something with my property that is not harming anyone else. And yet this is exactly what patent and copyright do. That is previous CorbettReport.com guest Stefan Kinsella, uh, available at StefanKinsella.com and also the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom at C4SIF.org, which is dedicated to building public awareness of the manner in which laws and policies impede innovation, creativity, communication, learning, knowledge, emulation, and information sharing, subjects that I would presume are near and dear to the hearts of listeners of The Corporate Report. Uh, but Stefan Kinsella, for those who don't know, is a patent lawyer who wishes to abolish the patent system and copyright. And he has some things to say about trademark and trade secrets, too, in his many, many lectures, interviews, video presentations, and other work that he's done, articles, podcasts, that he's done on this subject over the decades. And perhaps most notably in his monograph on the subject, Against Intellectual Property, which is available, of course, for free online. So I will direct people to that if they really want to get into the meat and potatoes of this this discussion, the history of these intellectual property laws, where they came from, what they actually do, and uh, why they are not just economically bankrupt, but morally bankrupt. And that's perhaps the real key to all of this. Um, these intellectual property laws and constructs are a net hindrance on innovation, creativity, knowledge, emulation, progress in very many ways that have been documented, I think, most ably by uh, Stefan Kinsella, who has dedicated decades of his life to the scholarly research of this subject and has an extremely voluminous knowledge on these issues. So I will direct people to Stefan Kinsella generally uh, and his the resources at his websites, which will be linked in the show notes. But I think he makes an extremely important point. Intellectual property is not property at all. It is simply going under the moniker, moniker of intellectual property in order to invest it with the idea in the minds of the public that this is just another form of property right, when really it is a completely different ontological category altogether. This is not like physical property in any sense. It's notably different. And that isn't a minor or a, a, a niggling little detail. That's actually part of the fundamental heart of the matter. 
And this is not a controversial point. In fact, it's one that you can glean even from the most mainstream of mainstream sources, like the WEX collaboratively edited legal dictionary and encyclopedia, which is available through Cornell Law School and other uh, law websites of uh, various sorts, where they provide the overview of intellectual property thusly. In general terms, intellectual property is any product of the human intellect that the law protects from unauthorized use by others. The ownership of intellectual property inherently creates a limited monopoly in the protected property. Intellectual property is traditionally comprised of four categories, patent, copyright, trademark, and trade secrets. And that, that entry on the Wex Dictionary, I will commend to your attention because it goes on to elaborate how this is not part of common law. It did not arise from common law, in which the general rule of law is that the noblest of human productions, knowledge, truths ascertained, conceptions, and ideas become, after voluntary communication to others, as free as the air to common use. So this is not a common law, something that emerged over centuries through a process. No, this was something that was imposed, was given the name of intellectual property as a, as a conscious political tactic in order to frame it within a, as a sort of property right, when in fact it is a state-granted monopoly. And that is the historical roots of intellectual property laws as we know them, state-granted monopolies that evolved into intellectual property laws. Um, that's, that's, again, an extremely important part of this puzzle. And let's, let's examine the effects of these laws, because the fundamental, the, the first line of defense for intellectual property for people who tend to defend the concept generally is the utilitarian concept. And that's because we have been propagandized our whole lives to believe that intellectual property laws are necessary to spur innovation and growth. I mean, why would creators create? Why would inventors invent if they did not have these state-granted monopolies in order to uh, reward them for their efforts, which is a fundamentally flawed narrative in a lot of different ways, which we'll get into more later. But uh, it's flawed in its most basic uh, assumption, which is that it does actually spur economic growth and innovation. When, in fact, the empirical evidence, if, if we're being utilitarian, we should just take it on the empirical evidence. Does intellectual property, do, do, do these laws actually foster innovation and growth? Do they, are they a net gain, economic gain? Now, I want to stress, this is not the base of the argument. This is not the important part of the argument, because the argument around any set of laws is not, does this make me more money or not? That is not the reason for justice. That is not how you attain justice. There are many ways in which we could imagine distributing wealth so that more people have more money uh, relative to the situation that exists today that is completely, not only unjust, but horrific, that would involve pointing guns at people's heads and, hey, if you could if you could take someone with a lot of money and put a gun to their head and say, you know, if you don't give your money to other people, we'll blow your brains out, that would ultimately end up in a lot more people having more money and being happier, but is that justice? And is that the way we want to go? Um, so the fundamental root of this question about intellectual monopoly, not property, is is not about the utilitarian. Does this is there a net economic gain? But even from that perspective, it is a failed and flawed argument. Um, although it is still propounded to this day, and as I say, we've been propagandized uh, our entire lives to accept this argument so that people can actually watch something like the dumbest propaganda video ever 
i.e. the recent presentation by the EU Intellectual Property Office, our good friends at the European Union bureaucracy monstrosity. Yes, there is such a thing as the EU IPO, and they did recently produce a propaganda video that is so laughable. I cannot believe anyone could possibly watch that with a straight face. But they posit not only that intellectual property laws are a, a spur to, and a, to growth and innovation in the economy. No, no, they, they take it several steps further. They say that the only reason that creative works exist, the only reason we have songs and, and movies and, and uh, software and all of these things, the only reason is because intellectual property laws exist. You have to see at least a few minutes of that ridiculous video to really... To, to really wrap your mind around the utter non nonsense that is being propounded under the name of these intellectual property laws. And it does make you wonder how, you know, so Shakespeare didn't exist because there weren't any intellectual property laws as we know them today, certainly around at that time. So I wonder how, you know, how were creative works created before this point? Anyway, um, again, I'll direct you to my recent propaganda watch on that in particular, but let's underline this. There is no, underline, exclamation mark, no empirical evidence at all that IP is a net growth and a net economic benefit. None whatsoever. Uh, this was detailed, for example, in a uh, article up on stefankinsella.com. Yet another study finds patents do not encourage innovation, in which Stefan Kinsella writes, as those familiar with my libertarian and IP views know, I'm not a utilitarian. See my, there's no such thing as a free patent and against intellectual property, but almost all IP proponents are, and they claim that IP is worth it because it generates additional innovation, the value of which is implicitly presumed to be obviously much greater than the relatively trivial cost of having an IP system. So it is striking that there seems to be no empirical studies or analyses providing conclusive evidence that an IP system is indeed worth the cost. Every study I have ever seen is either neutral or ambivalent, or ends up condemning parts or all of IP systems. And in this article, he goes on, I will commend it to your attention, he goes on through dozens and dozens of examples of scholarly works uh, that are examining the IP issue and for economic benefit or, or, or loss. And as he says, there's not one single empirical study that shows that there's a net economic gain. Um, as a result of these intellectual property laws, and that's that's a remarkable that's a remarkable fact, and we'll say fact because he has asked in the past if anyone knows of any empirical study that actually refutes the, this claim that there are no empirical studies showing a net economic uh, benefit. Please provide them to him because he'd like to see it. But he's got dozens and dozens of examples uh, proving the exact opposite. Uh, but hey, why take why take the word of some? no-name podcast guy in Japan or some patent attorney who's been studying it for decades and publishing scholarly works on the uh, subject, why not take it from, I don't know, say, an economist who co-wrote a book on the subject called Against Intellectual Monopoly? Let's start by talking a little bit about your background and your bona fides. Who are you and why are you writing about intellectual monopoly? Okay, well, I am and have been for many years now an economics professor, um, I mostly, for a long part of my career, studied game theory and general equilibrium theory as a theorist, and I was in fact drawn into the area of intellectual monopoly or property through my theoretical work. Um, it was a it was a truism among economists when I was young. I believed this as much as anybody else. The widespread view among economists was that intellectual property is a 
evil, but it's a necessary evil. And it's evil because it's a monopoly, and for a variety of reasons that economists understood for a long time, monopoly has a lot of disadvantages and downsides, but we understood that without the monopoly granted by patents and copyright, there would be no or very little innovation, there would be no or very little literature, and so forth and so on. So we viewed this as a necessary incentive. And so McKelly and I, some years ago, sort of following up on, on earlier work with small-scale models, started building a, a large-scale model, general equilibrium model, of how innovation took place. And doing so, we built into it a role for intellectual property, for monopoly, the necessity of monopoly. And we worked through this model. And at some point, at some point, we realized just as a matter of pure theory, that the wasn't it was innovation that was doing all the lifting, that the monopoly wasn't actually doing anything. And if there was no monopoly, the lifting would still take place. And this sort of challenged our this challenged our beliefs. Um, we thought, gosh, how could this be? But we worked through the theory carefully and said, well, theoretically, this is correct. But, you know, who knows if it's relevant in the real world. So then we started looking around and we discovered, much to our surprise, that there's a long literature in economics, empirical economics. People look at data. People look at the effect of patents and so forth and so on. And it was very puzzling literature. It was very puzzling to the people that wrote it. People would write things like, well, we know that you have to have patents in order to have innovation. And yet, when we go to look at the data, it seems like they're actually maybe bad. Maybe they reduce innovation. Maybe they don't help innovation. But we can't understand how could that be? Well, we could understand how that could be because we had been working on this theory that said that might very well be the way it was. And so we, we felt we had a reconciliation. And this led ultimately to the book. You know, as we looked more and more, the book is not, it's not original research in the sense that we did not go out and get our own data and analyze our patents, good or bad. It's a book in which we take other people's research, empirical economists' research, all of them, not cherry picking just a few, to take a look and see you know, when does it work, does it work, Right, And also an effort to try to understand and explain how could it be, you know, if you don't, if you can't get a copyright, how could you profit off of a book? Right. And <coughs> we've had a substantial impact in the economics community on um, a subtle one, I think. But I mean, you know, it's no longer a truism among economists that you must have patents, you must have copyright to have innovation. People now well understand that, well, there might be circumstances where it would be helpful. By and large, it's not needed. In many cases, it's counterproductive. There's a substantial emerging literature. Um, people like Jim Besson and, Besson and Moore have done empirical work on software patents, basically showing that, 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 that that's an easy case to close. Um, software patents are no good. Um, and on and on and on. So that's the, that's the background of how we came to this, how the book came to be written. Um, and that's sort of our current, that's our current understanding is that by and large patents and copyrights are unnecessary evil and we would actually prefer just to get rid of them. David K. Levine, co-author of Against Intellectual Monopoly, another book that is available freely online. So I will once again direct people to the show notes where they can get the link to that free uh, publication. 
and I hope they do so, to, in order to read in greater detail about the, the economic argument against intellectual property, uh, intellectual monopoly, and how it is, in fact, a drag on the economy, not a boon to growth and innovation, but deliberately, that is its function, is to actually impede people from using knowledge to create emulate, grow, and progress in various ways. And they give many very interesting examples of that in very specific ways. One that we talked about in that conversation that I had with David K. Levine last week was specifically regarding James Watt, the hero and innovator of the steam engine that provided the transformation of the Industrial Revolution. Well, not quite. He provided one specific upgrade to an already existing model of the steam engine that uh, proved useful to a to a degree, but the most useful thing he did was patent, achieve a patent on that invention so that he was able to effectively crowd out anyone from using his idea for a, a couple of decades. And then when the patent ran out, that is when innovation and, and growth happened. And there was an amazing spur and the various improvements on the improvements of the improvements that uh, that were possible were finally realized. So his patent did nothing other than impede that progress for the duration of the patent, although there were some people pirating his idea, pirating his invention, as unfortunately the analogy has been used. These are pirates who are raiding the high seas of intellectual property in plundering them for the ideas that uh, form the basis for actual economic progress. Oh, how dare they? Um, it's a fascinating story, and just one of many. And in that book, uh, Levine and his co-author, Michele Boldrin, go on to talk about various examples, for example, in, in the software industry, uh, copyright, and how it can function, uh, how creative activity can function in the absence of copyright. In fact, how authors and creators can actually make more money without copyright than with. And they, they talk about that in depth. There's a lot to it, but they also address the more fundamental point about the in, not, not just the economic, but the moral bankruptcy of intellectual property laws. These are not just uh, hindrances on the economy. They are fundamentally immoral. As as they say in the book, intellectual property is evil. And that is a case that they make, and I think quite persuasively so. And we can attack this from a number of different levels, the base of which is that it is an incredible conceit, perhaps the most brazen and in-your-face conceit of all time, to assert that any particular idea, any instantiation of this particular idea in this particular context is mine, and I created it out of nothing, and I own it, and no one else can use it, even when I demonstrate it to the world. That, that involves hubris on a level that's almost unbelievable, and yet because we have been propagandized our lives, we don't see it in the proper context. One way to recontextualize our understanding of what is going on when people innovate and create something new is to understand it in that context of, well, the fact that everything is a remix. The act of creation is surrounded by a fog of myths. Myths that creativity comes via inspiration, that original creations break the mold, that they're the products of geniuses, and appear as quickly as electricity can heat a filament. But creativity isn't magic. It happens by applying ordinary tools of thought to existing materials. And the soil from which we grow our creations is something we scorn and misunderstand, even though it gives us so much. And that's copying. 
Put simply, copying is how we learn. We can't introduce anything new until we're fluent in the language of our domain. And we do that through emulation. For instance, all artists spend their formative years producing derivative work. Bob Dylan's first album contained 11 cover songs. Richard Pryor began his stand-up career doing a not-very-good imitation of Bill Cosby. And Hunter S. Thompson retyped The Great Gatsby just to get the feel of writing a great novel. Nobody starts out original. We need copying to build a foundation of knowledge and understanding. And after that, things can get interesting. After we've grounded ourselves in the fundamentals through copying, it's then possible to create something new through transformation, taking an idea and creating variations. This is time-consuming tinkering, but it can eventually produce a breakthrough. James Watt created a major improvement to the steam engine because he was assigned to repair a Thomas Newcomen steam engine. He then spent 12 years developing his version. Christopher Latham Scholes modeled his typewriter keyboard on a piano. This design slowly evolved over five years into the QWERTY layout we still use today. And Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb. His first patent was improvement in electric lamps, but he did produce the first commercially viable one after trying 6,000 different materials for the filament. These are all major advances, but they're not original ideas so much as tipping points in a continuous line of invention by many different people. But the most dramatic results can happen when ideas are combined. By connecting ideas together, creative leaps can be made, producing some of history's biggest breakthroughs. Johann Gutenberg's printing press was invented around 1440, but almost all its components had been around for centuries. Henry Ford and the Ford Motor Company didn't invent the assembly line, interchangeable parts, or even the automobile itself. But they combined all these elements in 1908 to produce the first mass-market car, the Model T. And the internet slowly grew over several decades as networks and protocols merged. It finally hit critical mass in 1991 when Tim Berners-Lee added the World Wide Web. These are the basic elements of creativity. Copy, transform, and combine. Now that's a short clip from the 2015 documentary Everything is a Remix, which makes the point that everything is a remix and that all creativity involves copying in some form or other, standing on the shoulders of giants as Isaac Newton, of course, said, asterisk, he stole that phrase from someone else. <laughs> there, there's nothing new under the sun, as I'm sure you've heard before, and it is the height of hubris to imagine that you can own an idea a concept, a chord, a word, because you invented it out of whole cloth from your magnificent brain. Everything in the world of ideas and noumena are borrowed and copied and appropriated and transformed, uh, but certainly borrowed and copied and appropriated from the creative commons that does exist of humanity. And that is an important concept because... Let's follow the intellectual property train of thought to its inevitable, absurd conclusion that literally every idea, every thought, every invention, well, we must have to pay someone for the privilege of using these words that were invented out of whole cloth by the people before us. You think I'm being facetious. You think this is a straw man argument. No, there are IP proponents that literally argue this. 
The most radical of all IP proponents is Andrew Joseph Kalambos, whose ideas, to the extent that I understand them, border on the absurd. Kalambos believed that man has property rights in his own life, primordial property, and in all non-procreative derivatives from his life. Since the first derivatives of a man's life are his thoughts and ideas, thoughts and ideas are primary property. Since action is based on primary property, ideas, actions are owned as well. This is referred to as liberty. Secondary derivatives, such as land, televisions and other tangible goods, are produced by ideas and action. Thus, property rights in tangible items are relegated to lowly secondary status as compared with the primary status of property rights in ideas. Even Rand once elevated patents over mere property rights in tangible goods in her bizarre notion that patents are the heart and core of property rights. Can we really believe that there were no property rights respected before the 1800s when patent rights became systematized? Halambos reportedly took his own ideas to ridiculous lengths, claiming a property right in his own ideas and requiring his students not to repeat them. Dropping a nickel in a fund box every time he used the word liberty as a royalty to the descendants of Thomas Paine, the alleged inventor of the word liberty, and changing his original name from Joseph Andrew Halambos, Jr., presumably, to Andrew Joseph Halambos, to avoid infringing his identically named father's rights to the name. By widening the scope of intellectual property and by lengthening its duration to avoid making such arbitrary distinctions as Rand does, the absurdity and injustice caused by IP becomes even more pronounced, as Halambos demonstrates. And by extending the term of patents and copyrights to infinity, subsequent generations would be choked by ever-growing restraints on their use of property, no one would be able to manufacture or even use a light bulb without getting permission from Edison's heirs. No one would even be able to build a house without getting permission from the heirs of the first protohuman who left the caves and built a hut. No one could use a variety of life-saving techniques, chemicals or treatments without obtaining permissions of various lucky rich descendants. No one would be able to boil water to purify it or use pickling to preserve foods unless he is granted license by the originators or their distant heirs of such techniques. Wait, 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 wait. So you're telling me that I'm not at liberty to say the word liberty without paying the descendants of Thomas Paine for the privilege because he somehow homesteaded the word? Liberty? Well, I think we can all agree that's a bunch of f***ing Absurd, ridiculous, laughable, on-its-face nonsense. Although, really, hats off to Halambos for going all the way with that. Actually riding that train of th thought to its illogical derailment at the end of that track <laughs> with gusto and abandon, because not many IP advocates would have the gumption to actually stick to their guns and really take that to its illogical conclusion. But there it is. There's the absurdity at the end of that particular line of thought. And 
for those who think, well, okay, that's a bit ridiculous. But, you know, the, the question is getting just the right laws in the right way, making these completely arbitrary decisions in a, in a just way. So that, oh, patent, I mean, 19 years would just not be enough. 21 is way too much. 20, that's perfect. <laughs> or copyright, uh, copyright, of course, should be death of the author plus however many years it is this particular year, and when it changes because Mickey Mouse is coming up for renewal, well, and it should be probably another 10 or 20 years, or whatever the Congress critters say it is. That's the perfect point. And this, this drawing of these arbitrary lines, which is a necessary and implicit feature of IP, unless you are willing to take it to its illogical conclusion, these drawing of arbitrary lines are extremely important. Because IP, the intellectual monopoly regime that is granted by the state to its corporate cronies and banksters and lobbyists and other people who are pulling the strings in Washington and Tokyo and Ottawa and Canberra and everywhere else in the world, they are the ones deciding where to draw these arbitrary lines. And the, the regime of intellectual monopoly continues to extend and extend until eventually everything is owned, including the building blocks of life itself. Unknown to a large section of the public, a single US Supreme Court ruling in 1980 made it possible for the first time to patent life itself for the profit of the patent holder. The decision, known as Diamond v. Chakrabarty, centered on a genetic engineer working for General Electric who created a bacterium that could break down crude oil, which could be used in the cleanup of oil spills. In his decision, Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger ruled that a live, human-made microorganism is patentable subject matter under 35 U.S.C. 101. With this ruling, the ability to patent living organisms so long as they had been genetically altered in some novel way was established in legal precedent. Now you've heard of Craig Venter. And if, who hasn't heard of Craig Venter? Okay. Craig Venter uh, is a very famous man. He uh, started a company called Solera, uh, and they were going to be the private competitor to the publicly funded Human Genome Project, um, and that, but that was much later. Um, he actually taught at the University of Buffalo, where uh, Peter, Lisa, and I are all alums of. Uh, he was in the ph pharmacy department for a while, um, and nobody liked him that I know of. Um, but he is a very famous man who has done great things. I don't want to detract from his greatness. And, uh, and he actually did do a lot to spur along the, 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 the race uh, uh, for completing the human genome because he helped to develop a new method, a really uh, important new method to rapidly sequence genes. The whole genome shotgun method which relies on computing power, uh, it's a great, it's, if you're a geek, go read about it. I'm not going to describe it here. Um, but he, uh, that was a great innovation. Now, when he was working for Watson as part of the Human Genome Project in 92, he and another couple people in the, in the NIH thought, wow, when we get these things, when we find genes, and they were using, they were looking for express sequence tags, which delineate the ends of, uh, of genes, what we should do is we should file patents on these things because they could become valuable in the future. James Watson, uh, well, 
first of all, Bernadine Healy, uh, who was James Watson's boss at the time, thought this was a great idea. When James Watson got word of it, he bitterly complained. He, he has a temper, apparently. And he yelled and screamed that this couldn't happen. You can't do this. He was really he was just going to uh, blow a stack over this. It didn't, it didn't make him happy, in a, in a sense. Um, and when Bernadine Healy uh, discovered his unhappiness because of his very vocal uh, opposition to it, she fired him. So uh, he was no longer in charge of the, NAC, the, the HGP in uh, the US. Francis Collins then became the head of that. And he's now going to be head of NIH. So a little historical background to put it in perspective. Venter went on, founded a company, a private company, uh, Solera, which I already talked about. And they, as they began to sequence the human genome, guess what they did? Patented the hell out of it. So um, they started filing patents left and right. Uh, other companies, Insight, and a couple other companies uh, really got into the act. And the short story, the, the uh, uh, short um, story of it is that today about 20% of the human genome is patented. So 20% of genes are, are, have some patent claim filed on them. A gene is a, an arrangement of nucleotides that codes for a protein. Uh, a little bit of science. It, its action involves the creation of proteins by mRNA, messenger RNA, which as it uh, creates the proteins, reads the beginning and end of the gene and leaves out the introns. Now, this is a natural process. This is how you are made. You are composed of proteins uh, that are read uh, through this process, okay, and produced in different cells according to differentiation of those cells, again, through the instructions of your DNA. It is the same mechanism as that which scientists use to create what they call isolated and purified genes, all right, cDNA. That's important. A patent on cDNA is, I argue, not different than a patent on a gene itself. There's nothing new about the cDNA. All right? That's, the, as I said, the process for creating cDNA is, is the transcription process that goes on all the time. Nature divides this. It isn't anything new. It's not novel, and it's not properly patentable. But I'm not here to make the legal argument. So don't... don't don't let's get tripped up on that, uh, because I have another argument about this that has to do with ethics. We can debate it later. Uh, my friend Luigi Palombi has an excellent book, which I recommend. It's called uh, Gene Cartels, and he really tears apart all of the legal arguments on the other side of the debate. So if any of you want to debate that, I'll ask him to step up here and uh, uh, talk about that. Let's talk about the ethics. Um, so when people try to patent genes, when they do what um, Craig Venter and, uh, and others have done in trying to patent genes, they are attempting to enclose an unenclosable space to the exclusion of others. And I argue that this is an ethical wrong. So what, where does that, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, we have people from the ACLU here today as well who are courageously suing Myriad Corporation uh, for Myriad's patents on the BRCA1 and 2 genes. Um, 
uh, and uh, let me introduce them because uh, I really think they're doing a great work. And, um, I saw Sandra too, right? Okay, Sandra Park uh, is with the ACLU. She's an attorney on the case uh, that is uh, against Myriad, and Tanya Simoncelli uh, is a lead scientist on this case. So um, they are doing the right thing here because Myriad has violated not only the law, I mean, they're doing something that I approve of ethically as well, because there is an ethical problem. Myriad has attempted to possess, through patents, the BRCA1 and 2 genes, which are responsible uh, uh, for a great number of cancers. Um, and in so doing, they are trying to prevent others from uh, uh, using those genes. So they have actually sent cease and desist letters uh, to researchers uh, who were doing research on the BRCA1 and 2 genes, who were in the course of that research reproducing the genes. All right? I argue that not only is that illegal, which is Luigi's domain and Sandra's and Tanya's domain, it is unethical because this is an attempt um, to curtail our autonomy over our own genome. You and I have as much right to investigate what makes us up as anyone else. And this goes back to the axioms I, I explored early on in the talk. What Myriad owns through these patents is a right to exclude you from finding out about what is in you. And they're ex exercising that right to our common detriment. In fact, it does violence to you when they exercise that right. In much the same way as if Peter ripped this book from my hand. Who owns you? Who owns you? The building blocks of your body, the DNA, the genes that make up who you are, is not a rhetorical question. It is the question posed in a book by the same name, Who Owns You? by David Kospel, who was delivering that lecture back in 2010 about his 2009 book. Uh, but unfortunately, it is still an open question, at least in the realm of intellectual monopolization of our bodies. More information about this can be gleaned, for example, from the ACLU, which, as David Kospel was uh, talking about in that lecture, was involved in the court case against companies like Myriad and others, Myriad Genetics, that were at that time attempting to patent various genes. More information from a BRCA FAQ that ACLU has, has up on their uh, website. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office grants patents on human genes, which means that the patent holders own the exclusive rights to those genetic sequences, their usage, and their chemical composition. Anyone who makes or uses a patented gene without permission of the patent holder, whether it be for commercial or non-commercial purposes, is committing patent infringement and can be sued by the patent holder for such infringement. Gene patents, like other patents, are granted for 20 years. For example, Myriad Genetics, a private biotechnology company based in Utah, controls patents on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Because of its patents, Myriad has the right to prevent anyone else from testing, studying, or even looking at these genes. It also holds the exclusive rights to any mutations along those genes. No one is allowed to do anything with the BRCA genes without 
Myriad's permission. How many genes are patented? A 2005 study found that 4,382 of the 23,688 human genes in the National Center for Biotechnology Information's gene database are explicitly claimed as intellectual property. This means that nearly 20% of human genes are patented. In addition to the BRCA genes, genes associated with numerous diseases, both common and rare, are patented including Alzheimer's disease, asthma, some forms of colon cancer, Canavan disease, hemochromatosis, some forms of muscular dystrophy, long QT syndrome, and many others. And it goes on from there. Now, there is a hopeful uh, hopeful uh, update to this, which we can glean from the genetics home reference at nih.gov on a page that they have about can genes be patented, which reads, a gene patent is the exclusive rights to a specific sequence of DNA, a gene, given by a government to the individual organization or corporation who claims to have first identified the gene. Once granted a gene patent, the holder of the patent dictates how the gene can be used in both commercial settings, such as clinical genetic testing, and in non-commercial settings, including research, for 20 years from the date of the patent. Gene patents have, also, have often resulted in companies having sole ownership of genetic testing for patented genes. On June 13th, 2013, in the case of the Association for Molecular Pathology v. Myriad Genetics, Inc., the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that human genes cannot be patented in the U.S. because DNA is a product of nature. The court decided that because nothing new is created when discovering a gene, there is no intellectual property to protect, so patents cannot be granted. Prior to this ruling, more than 4,300 human genes were patented. The Supreme Court's decision invalidated those genes pat patents, making the genes accessible for research and for commercial genetic testing. Phew. Dot, dot, dot. The Supreme Court's ruling did allow that DNA manipulated in a lab is eligible to be patented because DNA sequences altered by humans are not found in nature. The court specifically mentioned the ability to patent a type of DNA known as complementary DNA, cDNA. This synthetic DNA is produced from the molecule that serves as the instructions for making proteins, called messenger RNA. An interesting little asterisk to all of that, and for more details on that, I would ask you to go back to that David Cospel lecture, lecture or his other work on the subject talking about cDNA and the importance of being able, still, legally, to patent cDNA. But anyway, oh, well, it, the, the actual straight genes are, can't be patented. It's, it's okay. So we're all whew, safe from that intellectual monopolization. Of course, that still leaves open the patenting of genetically modified life and what that means for, well, I mean, the biosphere itself. This is the flashing, neon, sign, end of the world type stuff. But no, let's all concentrate on carbon dioxide. Don't, don't look at all into the genetically modified monstrosities that are being created in the bowels of bear laboratories. Uh, Mons Monsan Monsanto, bear, bear Santo. Uh, yes, uh, for more information on that particular side of it, I will ask you to go back to that Open Seeds Biopiracy bio and the Patenting of Life GRTV episode uh, that I air aired a little bit of there, um, because I think it is relevant, although it is certainly a subject that we need to be returning to. There are so many different details here that we can only skim over the surface of in a short excerpt like this, but I hope you understand the importance, the incredible importance of this topic. What 
can be intellectually monopolized and what cannot? And who gets to draw that line? And where do they draw that? And in whose interest and favor do they draw that line? Hint, it's never in your interest or in your favor. And here is another case in point. This is generally where I'd say, and wait, it gets worse, although I'm not sure how much worse you can get than the idea that companies are attempting to exert intellectual monopoly over the building box blocks of life itself. But it is unfortunately another step down this path towards the monopolization of everything by the very few politically connected corporations under the guise of intellectual property. And I'm talking specifically about the attempt to essentially monopolize the internet by spreading the intellectual monopoly regime uh, as a big wide cloth over the internet to stifle communication as it has taken place on the internet for the last couple of decades. And this is important because it is the very stuff, the very lifeblood of the Corbett Report, if nothing else, and a million other things you do online. But the Corbett Report could not exist. Open source intelligence news could not exist if I couldn't freely access and communicate information from any wide number of sources. Of course, it is all fair use. Reporting, journalism is fair use. But when certain copyright regimes come into place on the internet requiring pre-upload filters to make sure that nothing that has any sort of C with a magical circle around it can ever be uploaded without the express written consent of the, the person who owns those, those words, when they start implementing that, that truly is the crackdown of the internet. And thankfully, for the last several years, people have have been aware of this as a problem and have risen up time and time again to strike it down. SOPA, PIPA, ACTA. If you are not familiar with these four-letter words, that's, that's the real four-letter words that should require a swear jar um, because they are the filthiest uh, words imaginable. Uh, these, this is various forms of legislation that have arisen in the past several years in one form or another in the US, in Europe, and elsewhere trying to crack down on the free flow of ideas on the internet in the name of intellectual monopoly. The latest iteration of which is, of course, the EU Copyright Directive, which at the time that it was being forwarded uh, had a provision known at that time as Article 13, which was particularly chilling. EU's new copyright reform proposal is set to be voted on and it will truly be disastrous to the internet. As it currently stands, it'll require widespread censorship in the form of mandatory filtering and also link taxes that have already been shown to be harmful to news. European Parliament member Julia Retta is one of the folks sounding the alarm and she goes on to detail the many, many problems of the current copyright proposal in which merely linking to a news site may require paying money, the link tax and where concerns about how that might negatively impact the entire internet are, of course, being ignored. Perhaps even worse is the mandatory filtering idea. The big record labels and movie studios, James, of course, have been pushing for this kind of thing for years to get back at Google mainly, and of course, of course, their GooTube arm, and Facebook a little bit. But here's the thing. Both Gulag and Fedbook already have all those filters in place and spent tens of millions of dollars on them. As Retta points out, most of the EU member states appear to be not only supportive supportive of these horrible ideas, but they're into actually pushing even worse ideas. What now stands between this horrible law making a mess of the internet, making more of a mess of the internet, 
is just the EU Parliament, which is currently scheduled to vote on this in late June, probably right around the, uh, you know, summer solstice, June 20th, 21st. Update! As of April 15th, 2019, Tector.com did note, as expected, EU nations rubber stamp EU copyright directive. As was widely expected, the EU Council, made up of representatives of the EU member states, has officially rubber-stamped the EU copyright dire- directive that the EU Parliament passed a few weeks back. There had been some talk of various countries, such as Sweden, Germany, and the UK possibly changing their vote. Sweden, in the end, actually did do so. But to stop the directive, it was necessary for the UK or Germany to do so as well. And they did not. And now, the big question is, how will the various countries implement the law? Technically, they have two years to do so, and this should be watched closely. France's culture minister has already said he's hopeful that France will implement the law by the summertime so that con- the country may be the first. That would be interesting, considering that France has also been the most committed to the absolute worst ideas around the law. France may then set the standard for how to implement Articles 11 and 13 in a manner that some smaller countries may mimic. Of course, if France actually follows through on the dumbest of all implementations, a decent possibility, it will also make for an interesting test case to see if companies simply decide to block servers in France, services in France. Either way, once the laws are implemented, we, we, we expect there will be legal challenges to them, and then we'll have years of court battles to fight while the EU countries uh, wonder why successful internet companies don't ever come to the EU. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and update to the update, uh, for all of the, uh, the, the uh, incredible information surrounding the Article 13 and Article 11 and all of the horrible bits of that EU copyright directive and all of the people who were shouting, this, this is horrible. Well, unfortunately, their worst fears are seeming to come to fruition if uh, new leaked documents from the European Commission are anything to go by. Uh, This is something that I had the chance to talk recently to Glenn Moody, who writes for TechDirt and other um, uh, publications online about, specifically regarding his article on EU looking to regulate everything online and to make sites proactively remove material. One of the reasons that TechDirt and many others fought so hard against the worst ideas of the EU copyright directive is that it was clearly the thin end of the wedge. If things like upload filters and the imposition of intermediary liability become widely implemented as the result of legal requirements in the field of copyright, it would only be a matter of time before they were extended to other domains. NetsPolitik has obtained a seven-page European Commission paper sketching ideas for a new EU Digital Services Act that suggests doing exactly that. The act's reach is extremely wide. The scope would cover all digital services, and in particular, online platforms. This means the clarification would address all services across the internet stack, from mere conduits such as ISPs to cloud hosting services, while a special emphasis in the assessment would be dedicated to updated rules for online platforms such as social media, search engines, or collaborative economy services, as well as for online advertising services. Now, This article goes on to talk about how Article 13, which is now Article 17, uh, is uh, is clearly embedded in here and will, uh, they are talking about upload filters of one form or another, and they're talking about other other things being slipped into here. Um, For example, the fact that this, the other main proposal of this document is to bring in mandatory pan-European rules for tracking online hate speech and disinformation 
drawing on ideas in national laws. Uniform rules for the removal of illegal content, such as illegal hate speech, would be made binding across the EU, building on the recommendation on illegal content and case law, and include a robust set of fundamental rights safeguards. Such notice and action rules could be tailored to the types of services, e.g. whether the service is a social network, a mere conduit, or a collaborative economy service, and where necessary to the types of content in question while maintaining the maximum simplicity of rules. Blah, 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 etc., etc. Please do read the full article. But here it is, folks, being smuggled, no surprise, along with EU copyright uh, directives and guidelines and ideas is, oh, and we also have to crack down on all this nasty thought crime that's going around. We know where this is heading, and we know for whose benefit all of this is tending. It is not to mine or yours or people who have for years gone to alternative media, independent media, media outside of the, the, the approved gatekeepers for information. That will not be possible in the vision of the intellectual monopolists who are seeking to clamp down on the internet and all free flow of expression. Pretty soon, if the intellectual monopolists have their way, the IP proponents have their way, the internet will be McDonald's, Mickey Mouse, corporate playground. It will be a corporate vision of the future in which all services will be coming from big corporate You'll listen to music from corporate labels, you'll watch Hollywood movies, you will certainly not be able to upload anything yourself. And if you think I'm joking, you should really see where all of this is tending and where, inevitably, this illogical train of thought ends up. I did have the chance recently to talk about this, as I say, in more detail with Glenn Moody of TechDirt. Perhaps a leading question here, but if you were in a position to uh, to want to stifle or suppress uh, the free flow of information online, could you think of a better way to do it than under the guise of copyright legislation and directives like this that, that try to impose these types of filters? I, I mean, clearly it is an extremely effective way and one that lets you say, well, nothing to do with us. It's purely enforcing something else. And it is that collateral damage, you're right, that is the worrying thing, the fact that this is claimed to be protecting the artists. I mean, this was the line that the, the politicians used in the European Union, that we only want to bring this in so that artists can create, you know, which no one is against, so that artists earn a fair wage, which no one is against. But it's the collateral damage of the fact that, for example, things like parodies or the, the other ways of using content legally, although they wouldn't be banned, it's the grey areas that algorithms can't cope with. And it's worth remembering that many copyright cases end up at the top courts, whether the Supreme Court in America or the European Union Court of Justice, where you have multiple top judges spending days, if not weeks, trying to decide these questions. These laws will require a computer program to decide on the spot in microseconds. I mean, it's it's clearly impossible. But the people that wrote these laws don't understand technology and they tend to say, oh, well, you know, sort it out. It's just a technical issue. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. You, you can't just say it's a technical issue. You have to understand that. And they don't. I, I would very much like the audience out there that thinks this is just some sort of uh, t discussion about some sort of abstract copyright law to really understand this goes to the, the very heart of what it is I do 
as a journalist who is attempting to get information from different sources and quote different things that I'm seeing online, this is the type of thing that can potentially stop that from happening. If I'm not allowed to quote this source because, well, that would be copyright breach, well, it isn't really because it's fair use because of reporting, but if there's upload filters, well, it, that will never see the light of day, and people like myself will be squeezed out, whereas the, the big news uh, organizations will be allowed to proliferate. So... Uh, I, so let's let's steer this conversation to an interesting tweet that I saw you make recently in regards to a story about a text and data mining center that's opening up in Delhi that's going to be uh, taking in millions of scientific papers in order to, so that scientists can use software to add text and data mine those those articles for various purposes. Mm -hmm. But they they're not allowed to read those articles. Because, of course, that's a big no-no. That would be breaking copyright. But they, they're setting up algorithms to, to sort through these. Which goes to show at least part of the absurdity of this situation. And it would, it would be almost a laughing matter if it wasn't so serious. For example, we know that this is what ultimately led to Aaron Swartz being prosecuted and ultimately his suicide and death because of the, the uh, ridiculous imposition of uh, the attempt to control information that is embedded in these laws. And in fact, you, you expressed that in your tweet where you said, perfect demonstration of how copyright stops people accessing and creating knowledge. Time to abolish it. A bold statement. So let's hear your, well, <laughs> your take. I, I think it's important to put copyright in context. I mean, in fact, as usual, we Brits are to blame because we formalized the first kind of modern copyright law in 1710, the Statute of Queen Anne, and that worked well enough at the time, but the problem is we're still using that. We're using 18th century laws for 21, 21st century technology. And the 18th century laws are based on the idea that knowledge is scarce and that books are scarce, and therefore you must protect them. Whereas we now know on the internet, knowledge is not scarce and information is not scarce. And so to apply the laws of scarcity to something that can be copied infinitely necessarily causes problems. And things like the, as you mentioned, the text and data mining, we are being stopped from discovering new drugs. We're being stopped from discovering new medical treatments that could save thousands of lives because of copyright. Yes, folks, intellectual property is not useful. It is immoral. And perhaps more to the point, it doesn't exist. <laughs> so I hope that clarifies some of the problems that are coming up with regards to the way that intellectual property, intellectual monopoly, is being handled, as always, in favor of the giant corporations and against the average Joe. And no better example of that than what is happening right now online in the fight against EU Article 13 and all of these draconian internet censorship rules, regulations, and uh, legislation that's coming down the pipe as a result of the false intellectual property regime and what better what better instantiation of that what better what better way to encapsulate that than by playing yes i'm going to do it playing the thought crime chord oh are you ready folks we looked at the d major we looked at the d minor we looked at the d sus4 but what if we play that open e we're gonna get a Oh, there it is, the DSUS 2. Ah, thought crime. Oh, doesn't it feel liberating? I mean, yes, this video's probably been flagged by now, but still, <laughs> I hope you're not watching it on YouTube. 
But there we go, there's the thought crime. The DSUS2. Of course, it's patently ridiculous, the idea that anyone can own a cord. And you know that, and I know that, but strangely enough, the internet is still learning how to sus such things, if you'll forgive the pun. And in fact, that DSUS2 is so liberating, that thought crime is so freeing, that I saw fit to write a little song about this, and I hope you enjoy it. It goes a little something like this. like it. <laughs> if you do, spread it around. And in fact, I uh, think I might have a more fully developed version of that song on this summer's upcoming Summer Truth Music podcast, so stay tuned for that. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> I hope, I trust that I've made an important point today, and one that affects us all. Uh, whether you create content online or you simply like to imbibe it online, either way, this does affect you, and it is an extremely extremely important topic. Lots of resources and links in the show notes for this episode. I hope you'll go to corporatereport.com and check it out. Until next time, this is James Corbett of corporatereport.com. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes the Corbett Report possible. 
Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.